Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, when you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about those out-of-pocket costs. Now, that could be a lot of money, but are your medical bills accurate? Now, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills actually contain errors. Now, HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, or fraud. Now, you can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. Now, to date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Check them out online, healthlock.com. Go there today. Pure Talk, my sponsor and my wireless company, are now providing international roaming to over 50 countries. Now, as you plan your summer travel, make sure that your wireless company covers you at home and abroad. Now, you can get unlimited talk and text, plenty of 5G data for just 20 bucks a month. That's less than half the price of Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile for the exact same service. Just go to puretalk.com slash Sean, S-E-A-N, make the switch today, save an additional 50% off your first month. That's puretalk.com slash Sean, S-E-A-N. This is the Sean Hannity Show podcast. All right, welcome to the Sean Hannity Show. This is not the voice of Sean Hannity. It's the voice of Dan Bongino. But a big Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah. You know, that reminds me. I was, uh, I was looking through Instagram the other day. And have you all seen this? It's a, pretty, it's a pretty popular meme going around. It's the Batman slapping Robin meme. And, of course, you can fill in the text. And it says, Batman's, of course, slapping Robin. You've probably seen it for you social media savvy cats out there. And it, Batman's saying... We can say Merry Christmas now. The Republicans won. So Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah to our Jewish friends out there. Israel is going to be a big topic on today's show. And uh, it does feel good to say that. It feels even better. Apparently, I saw a Washington Examiner story about something like 57 to 37 percent Americans prefer saying Merry Christmas. Another example of the absolute futility of the far left trying to institute some kind of silly cultural war against Christmas that blows up in their faces every single time. So good job, American leftists. Thank you again for uh, inspiring a backlash against your utter silliness. Uh, I am Dan Bongino. I'm at Bongino on Twitter. Make sure you give Sean a follow, too, at Sean Hannity. If you want to tweet me comments, criticisms, whatever, we take them all. I'm the contributing editor or a contributing editor over at Conservative Review. And uh, it's really good to be here. I miss you all. It's been a while. So today's show, you know, I wanted to talk about a couple of different things, but Israel, of course, jumped out at me because it's another example of Barack Obama just instituting maximum carnage levels out the door. I mean, 
have you ever seen a a lame duck president come out and be as vindictive, petty, small? Um, I, I mean, I'm trying to think of the words because what I don't want to do is I don't want to get into nasty personal attacks because you'll lose the, you know, you'll lose the, the argument will be lost in it, right? He is... George Bush leaves office. He loses, right? He leaves office, and he doesn't say a word about Barack Obama. He, matter of fact, not only that, I, I had some objections to that. I felt like George Bush personally should have defended himself and, and didn't. He let, him, he let him do his thing, Barack Obama do his thing, even when Barack Obama's, quote, thing was crap. I mean, when Barack Obama's thing was instituting Obamacare, which hiked your premiums, shrank doctors' networks. I mean, an absolute epic legislative policy disaster like we haven't seen in decades. And George, George W. stayed really quiet, really quiet, out of respect for the sitting president. This guy hasn't even left office yet. He's a lame duck. We have a president-elect. And he already can't keep quiet. You heard the, the clip if you, when we opened the show. Michelle Obama, oh, now you know what it feels like. To not have any hope. Then today, taking another shot, which is really, really getting pathetic. The shots at Fox News. It's, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. I mean, can you get over it? You lost. Like, since you've been in office, Barack Obama, you've been a, a forest fire to the Democratic Party. A forest fire. They've lost, what is it, a thousand seats? They haven't had this little power federal st- at the federal, state, and local level since 1928. Cla- uh, clearly, this was a complete repudiation of the Barack Obama legacy. Now, I don't, wanna ca- I don't really care how he's personally popular. Yeah, that's cute. Great. What is he running for, like kindergarten class president? What does he bring in the best cupcakes for his birthday when he was in third grade? Hey, we really like him, but his policies really suck. I mean, he's been repudiated completely. Lost the house lost the Senate, lost the presidency. Barack Obama's been good at one thing. He's been good for Barack Obama. I'll give him this, ladies and gentlemen. He's a rock star candidate. That's it. He is a great campaigner. He campaigns for himself wonderfully. As for his policies and actually doing something positive for America, I think this election proves that that is a bunch of extensive uh, garbage, as the old New York Knicks uh, broadcast used to say in the fourth quarter when they were losing by 30. So he leaves, and then another shot he takes before he comes. I'm not going to get to Israel in a second, but he says, oh, I could have won. I could have beaten Trump if I could run for a third term. Ladies and gentlemen, who says that? No, no, seriously, all our liberal friends. I know Sean has liberal listeners. I know it because I, I, I listen to the show myself, and I, I see what happens on Twitter. So there are liberals listening. To our liberal friends, I, I'm dead serious. Re- regardless of your beefs with Trump, with George W., like, what kind of a sitting president talks like that? Like, oh, I could have beaten this guy if I went for a third time. Yeah, but you can't. You can't run for a third. Like, you, what? You could have beaten him if you ran for a third term? But what are you trying to do? I mean, it reminds me. <laughs> do you remember um, The Simpsons? You remember Nelson Muntz? I wasn't a big Simpsons fan. But when I was in um, one of my the training academies I went to, the law enforcement side, I remember this guy was obsessed with Nelson Muntz, and he used to make that sound. You remember that? Like if something bad happened. And I think it was Bart, like fell out of a tree, Bart Simpson, one time, and he broke his arm. And he, he said, you know, and he goes, eh, eh, 
yeah. And then Bart's like, oh, I broke my arm. He goes, but I said, uh, yeah. like, this is Barack Obama. Like, we're playing childish games right now. I could have won if I could have run for a third time. This is just outrageous. This is silly stuff. He needs to grow up. But that's all petty personal stuff. The stuff he's doing out the, out the door by edict legislatively and through his, you know, his pen and his phone and through the U.N. is causing real damage, ladies and gentlemen. I'm being deadly serious on this. This is going to have very severe ramifications going forward. This thing on Israel, this stunt on Israel he pulled is, is quite literally unprecedented. We have thrown our only Democratic friend in the region under the bus. Now, folks, what I want to get into during the show, and we have uh, Sebastian Gorka coming up later at 4. We have Congressman Mark Meadows, a big fan of him, 4.30, and uh, Noah Pollack at 5. The problem I have with this is it requires a complete rewriting of history, number one, but it acknowledges the fact that there are these two groups of people because you have to understand the why, where the attack on Israel, the anti-Israel posture comes from. If you don't understand the why, you don't understand what's really going on behind the scenes. The why matters here. The why always matters with the left because there's always a reason for the stuff they do. You know, whether it was Obamacare, it wasn't about health care, nothing to do with health care. It had everything to do with control. Same thing with tax policy. You name it, when you get to the hard left, I'm not talking about all Democrats, but when you get to the motivations for the hard left, you can always distill it down to this one point. It's always about control. And control means free, you know, freedom being a zero-sum game, means taking away your liberty and forfeiting it, ceding it over to some state entity. That's always the goal of the liberal. Always. Every time. Now, with the Israeli issue and the Obama's anti-Israel uh, posture, and just to give you a little context on what happened, for those of you, most of you have probably heard, but in case you haven't, it's been a busy weekend. There was a resolution put forth at the United Nations to basically condemn settlements in areas of the West Bank, which is Israeli land, folks. It's Israeli land. I, I don't care what, what, the, what the anti-Israeli crew out there says. It is Israeli land. There are historical claims to this land going back thousands of years. It's Israeli land. I'll go into that a little more during the show, but there was a resolution put forth to condemn settlements on that land. Basically, Israelis living on Israeli land. That, that's, that's it. They want to condemn it. And the United Nations put forth this resolution, which the United States could have vetoed, could have blocked, and we didn't. We took a pass. We did the old, you know, Lucy Charlie Brown thing where we put the football and we pulled the football away at the last minute on the Israelis. And they let this resolution pass. This is going to have very damaging effects, which we're going to get into here. But it's important you understand the why. The why matters, man. The why matters. There are two groups of people that have aligned here. Two groups of people that see this, that, that, that are passionately embedded with this anti-Israel movement. First, it's just the anti-Semite crowd. There is a significant swath, uh, sadly, of people out there who just can't stand the existence of Israel. I mean, do you need any proof of this? I mean, whether it's Al-Qaeda, the, uh, the uh, radical Islamist crowd, uh, whether it's Hamas, Hezbollah, it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, regional terrorist groups, you, can, you, can, you can't swing a dead cat within the region without hitting someone who thinks Israel shouldn't exist. It's sad. It's sick. It's deranged. But there are people who believe Israel, many people who believe Israel should be wiped off the map. That crowd, of course, supports this kind of a thing. 
because they don't want settlements to exist because they don't want Israel to exist. There's a big difference. It's not about the settlements. It's about Israel. They want Israel wiped off the map. These quotes are legion. They're everywhere. That's the first group of people. But they found kind of a convenient partner, ladies and gentlemen, with another group of people. You know, and I've, I've read some of this in books and some other people have put these theories out there. I'm certainly not the one who invented this by any stretch. It's not an original thought, but it is a thought you need to know nonetheless. They've combined with the American hard left, not all Democrats. I want to be very clear on that. A lot of Democrats are tired of this anti-Semitic nonsense, too. But the American hard left that objects to Israel for not specifically because of anti-Semitic reasons, although that may be a part of it, but because they see Israel like they see the United States. They see them as a relatively free market economy, a prosperous economy in a section of the world where other people and other groups of people just couldn't make it happen, folks. If Israel is allowed to exist, having been given really a patch of sand with relatively few natural resources, and Israel could become one of the world's most prosperous per person uh, economies in the entire world, if this is allowed to stand as a model of success, then it pretty much destroys all of the hard left redistributionist socialist type thinking out there if it's allowed to stand. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that the people, those type of people, the anti-capitalist crowd and the anti-Semitic crowd, that there's not a little bit of each in both. But largely, those are two distinct crowds that have found one common cause in the destruction of Israel. And it is disgusting. It's pitiful. It's pathetic. I've done all kinds of Facebook sessions on this kind of stuff. I get tired of it. All right, folks, I got more on this ahead. Please don't uh, don't do that. This is important. Explain the why. You know, the why matters, how these crowds have come together and found some kind of meeting in the destruction of Israel, which I find pretty much disgusting. I'm Dan Bongino at the Bongino on Twitter, contributing editor over at Conservative Review, filling in for Sean Hannity. If you want to give us a call, 800-941-7326. That's 800-941-SEAN. The contributing editor over at Conservative Review. Happy to be back. Love Sean's audience. It's a big, loyal audience. We dig that chili. I've been talking Israel because it's a sensitive topic for me because it's not just about Israel, folks. Obama's slapping the face to Israel out the door, this U.N. resolution condemning settlements, what you and I would basically call houses um, in Jewish territory, in Israel, is Israeli territory. Uh, is is a disgrace. A refusal to block this resolution is a slap at liberty. It's a slap at freedom. And understand, for all you suckers out there being sucked into the vortex of this boycott, divest, uh, silly and sanction movement against Israel. I see this a lot on college campuses. Understand that you are on the opposite side of liberty and freedom and you're embarrassing yourself. You, you look silly. You have no idea what you're talking about. You have no idea what the idea of liberty or freedom is. You're just making it up because what is it? I don't know. I don't get it. I haven't been on a college campus in a while. Is this like the new cool thing to do to boycott the only democracy in the region? Like boycott it in favor of what? You want a dictatorship? Because there are certainly a lot of options in a lot of Arab countries over there. What do you want? You want an oligarchy? What, a monarchy? What do, you, what do you want? You have a lot of choices. What, I thought college kids were all about, like, freedom, man. It's cool, brother. Freedom, peace, love, and tyranny. Let's boycott the Israelis. Why? Because they're oppressors. How? Uh, 
They're occupying land. Occupying land. How? They're occupying their own land? How do you do that? Like, I, I, you know, I, I have a radio studio in my house. Am I occupying my own house? Like, I'm an occupier now? Bongino is occupying the Bongino household. Are you that stupid? Folks, I'm, I'm serious, man, because this is really, and I don't understand, too. Listen, I'm largely a conservatarian. I have a pretty heavy libertarian bent on a lot of issues, government surveillance, you know, some issues that have to do with drug policy and things like that. But I can't understand my libertarian friends either who, who don't understand that Israel is not a foreign policy issue. You may say, wow, that's crazy, Dan. How is Israel not a foreign policy issue? Well, let me explain it to you. If you're, if you're not open to an explanation, don't bother. But if you're actually open-minded and you want to hear, I'm happy to explain this. When I, in my prior life as a federal agent, we did a lot of counterterror investigations. Now, we were not, I was a Secret Service agent, not an FBI agent. The FBI is the lead agent on terrorism investigations. But I was involved in a few of them, especially when I was on the Long Island office, uh, which is a subset of the New York field office, in, obviously in New York City. That's well, in Brooklyn now, but used to be in Manhattan at Seven World Trade Center. And I specifically remember working this really long case with these counterterrorism guys that had some experience in this and really getting intimately involved in the ideology that motivates a lot of these people, how they finance terror operations. You know, these things can be expensive, folks. Terrorism is not cheap. We'll have Sebastian Gorka on at four o'clock. We could talk more about that. But terrorism isn't cheap. Uh, It's not. It costs money to finance these kind of things. It's gotten cheaper with these small target terror assaults. But the 9-11 attack, depending on what estimates you see, costs between 500,000 and a million dollars. Now, there are a number of ways they do that. Untaxed cigarettes, counterfeit credit cards. And that's where I came in. And we had a big case involving counterfeit credit cards. And it's Fascinating when you talk to some of these people who understand the terrorist mindset, and the anti-Israel mindset. And what you have to understand, folks, is this is an asymmetric battle. And what I mean by that is one side has rules, us, and the other side are savages who have no rules. Like we're, 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 we're playing by the rules. Like we try not to kill innocent people, just like the Israelis. You know, we won't bomb civilian targets intentionally. There are always mistakes in war, but we don't target civilians like the Israelis. You know, we, we try to abide by international rules on war prisoners and, and treating them, uh, you know, in a, in a decent way. Have we always done it? No. Have we punished people who've broken those rules? Yes, like the Israelis. And then you have the other side, the savages who put pipe bombs with marbles and screws on public buses to make sure that, you know, nine and 10 year old kids get shredded by shrapnel from a pipe bomb. That's the other side. You know, it reminds me of a, of a quote by Golda Meir who said, you know, we can, she said to the, to the Arabs in the region, you know, we can forgive you for killing our children, but we can never forgive you for making us kill yours. And another one by Bibi Netanyahu, who was correct. You know, if the Palestinians would disarm, they could have a viable state. There'd be a pe- the process to peace. There'd be peace. But if the Israelis disarm, there'd be no Israel because they'd be slaughtered. Folks, the other side in this asymmetric battle where we have rules and they don't dictate the rules of war. And this is to get to my point as to why this isn't a foreign policy issue. The other side makes no distinction between the United States and Israel. They don't care what you think they don't care even a little bit they don't care about listen we got to ease up on our farm i get it i I am not a big of a foreign interventionist either 
I think we've had some pretty poor outcomes based on foreign policy interventions where we didn't have an endgame. I get it. I totally understand. I'm very sympathetic to that argument. What I'm not sympathetic to is an argument about, hey, listen, Israel, let them handle their own business. It's a foreign policy issue. When our enemies don't see it that way. Their their infamous line is, first the Saturday people, then the Sunday people. The Saturday people, of course, referencing uh, people who are Jewish, and the Sunday people being us. That's what they're talking about. First Israel, then the United States. They don't care. They don't make a distinction. To them, it's the United States, Israel. Who cares? We get them both. It's not a foreign policy issue for them. These people are not negotiating international settlements. They're negotiating death and death only. So what I can't understand is how people constantly get suckered into defending this silly, stupid argument like, oh, Israel, Israel, it's an apartheid state. It is? Really? Because it would be peace tomorrow if they would just stop inflicting massive carnage on the civilian population of Israel. There would literally be peace tomorrow. But they don't even want to recognize that right to exist. It's absurd. All right, let me take a call. We got. I love when people, you want to disagree? I'm telling you, bring it. 800-941-7326. 800-941-SEAN if you want to call in. Let's take uh, Tom in Miami. Tom, you're on with Dan Bongino. Hey, Dan. How you doing? Uh, I disagree with your argument. The idea that anyone that disagrees is automatically anti-Semitic is like the liberals playing the race card all the time. They call Israel our best friend, but they hadn't shed a drop of blood or spent a penny in any of our wars or for their benefit. And, uh, you so know, we condemn the Israelis to invading the Crimea. So we condemn Saddam. Wait, Tom, hold on. Time out. Kuwait. Tom, Tom, time out. It's not the Tom from Miami show. You can say something. I'm, I'm going to rebut it. So when the Iraq war happened and they were scud missiles were being lobbed into Israel, are you saying we didn't ask the Israelis not to respond? You're showing a real ignorance of history there. Well, why don't they shed their blood? And no, 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 Tom, answer the Tom. You claim, An- you Tom, Tom, quiet down now. Answer the question. Did we or did we not tell the Israelis in the Iraq war as they were being bombed by Scud missiles to not respond, to not inflame the situation? Yes or no? I, I doubt it. I really doubt that we oh, Okay, goodbye. I, I, See you later. Goodbye. Adios. There you go. Another liberal goofball calling. doesn't even know his history. He wants to call the, the second biggest radio show in the country and spout off about Israel, and he doesn't even understand the history of what happened. They haven't shed any blood. No, you're right. There's been no bloodshed in Israel for liberty and freedom at all, Tom. Are you, are you insane? Are you nuts? Seriously, how crazy do you have to be to humiliate yourself on a national radio show like that? We asked the Israelis in the Gulf War not to get involved, even though they were being bombed by Scud missiles. But he doesn't remember that. They wanted to keep the coalition together. But no, let me call in a radio show and just, you know, shred the Israelis. I'm sorry. I can't take people like that. I just can't. I have no patience for them at all. So let's get back to some basic points about what's going on with our Israeli foreign policy. So everybody understands, even the liberals, again, for the libs, take the cotton out of your ears for a minute and just stick it in your mouth. Liberals love to talk. They never listen to anybody. Dispute this point for me that I brought up before the break. I got more of these, but dispute this for me. Where can an Israeli Arab go and have more freedoms than they have in Israel? Israel, tell me another Arab country. I, I dare you. Watch what they'll do. They'll, I put this on my Facebook the other day. I put a couple arguments for uh, why I, 
I'm always passionately pro-Israel in this case because I'm pro-freedom. Because I believe in this crazy thing, folks, called liberty. And the liberal knuckleheads that responded, they, I, that was point number one. They put, number one, that's, that's irrelevant. It's irrelevant? What do you mean it's irrelevant? If you're saying that the Israelis are some occupying evil force in the world, yet the same people you claim are being, quote, occupied and oppressed, have more freedoms in Israel than they do in countries where, they're, they're, they're herit- where, they're from, where their heritage is from. Does that make any sense? Only to a liberal who lives in, like, liberal kooky fantasy land does that make any sense at all. They live in a fairyland. Okay, here's number two. And again, liberals, this is for you. So you're welcome to call again and tell me another Arab country. I'm still open to it. 800-941-7326. That's the number, Libs. You're more than welcome to call it. I love arguing about this topic. It is my favorite thing to do on talk radio. Here's number two. Whenever has there been a state of Palestine? Mm, mm, do you even have the Jeopardy? Answer, Alex. Uh, never. As in never, ever, ever, ever. <laughs> Jason, you're good. You are good. Oh, you're, it reminds me of Bobby De Niro in De Niro's movies. Oh, you're good. You're good. I, I do a terrible Bob De Niro, but I didn't know you had that on. I did not plan that, folks. Jason's just that good. That is Alex for a thousand. <laughs> there has never been a Palestine ever. Now, Let's, if I'm on the Jeopardy panel and I'm writing on that like teleprompter thing, I would put, question, there has been a state of Palestine when? Because they put it reverse. Answer on the teleprompter, never, ever, 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 ever. And I would fill it up until the end, until you had to squeeze in a little. Remember when you were a kid and you wanted to squeeze a note on one page and like the last line you were writing so small no one could see it? Ever, 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 ever. There has never been a state of Palestine. It has never existed. There have been references to Palestine, but that is that is largely to do with the, the Romans, uh, sometimes the British, uh, using the word Philistines and it being turned into Palestine. There has never been a state of Palestine. Who was their, who was their king? Who was the Palestinian king? Who was the Palestinian president? I'm talking about the state of Palestine. Where has it been? If they have such a claim to the area and the Israelis are this, quote, occupying force, because you're just making that up, where was the state of Palestine? Oh, never, ever, ever did it exist? It never existed. There's no such thing. Do you understand that? There's no such thing. Tell me who, tell me who their leader was. I don't want to hear about the PLO. I'm talking about the state. You can't. Just like you can't tell me what Arab country, an Arab from Israel, can move to to have more freedoms than they have in Israel? Just answer the question. Don't divert. Don't call in like Tom from Miami and start a whole different topic. Because, folks, this is what liberals do. Liberals will never answer the question. They'll be like, the rich did it. Reagan stinks. You're a racist. You clearly hate women. Grandma, too. Maybe puppies. Have you slayed a puppy lately? This is what they'll do. It's sickening. It makes me sick. All right, folks, I'm Dan Bongino at D Bongino on Twitter. In for Sean. Give Sean a follow at Sean Hannity on Twitter. We'll be right back. All right. 
right, welcome back to the Sean Hannity Show. Dan Bongino, contributing editor over at Conservative Review. In for Sean. I'm at Bongino on Twitter if you want to send me comments, criticisms, whatever. I take them all. And make sure you give Sean a follow, at Sean Hannity as well. By the way, before we get to our guest, Sebastian Gorka, who I think is the best. He's on the, on the terrorism issue. He's terrific. They played a song, Jason and Lauren, during the break. It was amazing. Uh, shout out to this Coulter Wall. It's called Sleeping on the Blacktop. I was literally going to go get a drink during the break. I kid you not. And Jason pumped it into my headphones. And I'm like, who was that? Sounded like Johnny Cash. So, Coulter, I know you must be a Hannity fan. Nice job there. Really solid. All right. Let's get to our guest. Love this guy. My friend Sebastian Gorka, vice president, professor of strategy at the Irregular War of and Irregular Warfare, excuse me, at the Institute of World Politics and at Seb Gorka on Twitter. Sebastian, how are you, my friend? Very well. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, too. It's, it's safe to say that again now that we've got a new administration coming in. So hallelujah to that. So whenever I think um, terrorism, I think, uh, you know, about Sebastian Gorka on the show. I mean, you, you, you really I can't get away from you between Fox and talk radio. I see you're in my house all the time. You're a welcome guest. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, you know, given my prior line of work in law enforcement and I haven't worked some of these counter terror cases before as well. I've heard you discuss this topic often, this change in this paradigm shift from the large, more spectacular attacks to these more isolated trucks, small kind of tactical, you know, small arms, tactical assault types of things. And you, you, you had an interesting phrase I saw on cable news. You said there's no front line anymore. What do you mean by that? Right, Dan. So, um, you know, when you use the word war, I think a lot of Americans think of, you know, World War II, Saving Private Ryan, maybe the first Gulf War. And in that, you know, you knew who the good guys were, you knew who the bad guys were, people wore uniforms, and there was a front line, whether it was, you know, a trench in the Ardennes, or whether it was, you know, a line of tanks on their way to liberate Kuwait. That's, that's you know, that's old. That's, that's behind us. In today's war, the front line exists when you leave your house in the morning. The front line is a Christmas party at an office in San Bernardino. It's a marathon in Boston. It's a Christmas fair in Berlin. And that's why every American needs to know that you are responsible for the safety of yourself and your loved ones. Don't expect the feds uh, to be able to save you if there's a jihadi attack occurring. And that's why everybody, you know, you're a, a national security professional. Uh, we use codes of awareness, uh, tactical levels of awareness, and everybody needs to be in what people call the, the phase yellow. So, you know, you see everybody walking down the street, staring at their iPhones, staring at their Androids. Uh, that is not how you can live your life today. You have to be aware. And as, as the law enforcement officers say, you need to have your head on a swivel. Yeah, you know, you do. And there are so many little things you can do. I, you know, there's, nobody's panicking. I mean, there's no need to be, uh, you know, at, 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 a, at a, you know, in the red zone all the time. But I agree with you 100 percent that a heightened state of awareness is the new um, reality. And, you know, even little things like every time I go to a restaurant, I'm sure to sit in a seat where I can see the door. And I just right. remember these little things having been in law enforcement. And I think you highlighting this new threat should kind of put antenna on people's heads that, yeah, you you are the sadly you are the frontline targets now for these sickos out there looking to do us harm. Yeah, I mean, I used to play this game with my my children when they were small. 
used to go to you know a mall shopping. We used to sit down at a restaurant or go to a movie theater. And I just used to ask them before they got comfortable. Tell me, how many ways in and out of this room are there? If if something bad should happen, uh, is there a good place to hide? Is the thing you're hiding behind going to stop bullets? It, it's like playing, you know, hide and go seek. But you know what? That can save lives, and that's what we have to think about today. The the enemy ISIS. Al-Qaeda has said it in their English language magazines. You must take the war to the infidel. You must kill them on their own territory. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. We have arrested or killed 125 ISIS terrorists in America in, in the last two and a half years. That's all you need to know. Yeah, you know, I was in, um, sadly, I was in church for Christmas Eve at a late night. It wasn't a midnight mass, but pretty late night. And I don't tell my wife this, although, you know, it's on public radio, so she'll probably hear it now. I know she's listening. But I always sit in the back in yep. church because, sadly, that's where the door is. And it, and it is sad that in this new, you know, modern world with this new evolving threat that that's the kind of things we have to do. But I really appreciate you highlighting that. Hey, a couple other things I wanted to get to, though. Um, so, <coughs> excuse me, Lauren just sent over a report from The Washington Times, and it had some uh, just a it was like a, a a lengthy piece on some of the criminal cases they've been working in northern Virginia, right outside the nation's capital. And one of the common threads you see in there is some of the people they've arrested or investigating for this are people who are army officers, um, cops. And with this assassination in Turkey, where a police officer in Turkey was the actual assassin screaming Allah Akbar. I mean, do you think this is the next push for them to try to co-op people who have access those army people military people and cops is this something that you've read in your research well this isn't new it's disturbing i think because we had this you know on video we're going to see that assassination of the russian ambassador for decades now we have the whole thing captured um, but this is an old problem this is the insider threat during the Cold War, it was uh, agents of influence. It was uh, double agents inside our security services, whether it's Aldrich Ames or whether it's uh, somebody uh, in the FBI like uh, Hansen. Now it's, it's about jihadis, not people that are going to steal our secrets and give them to the KGB, but people who are going to execute an attack on, as, as, you know, as we say, inside the wire. And this has been a problem since, well, let's look at Fort Hood. I mean, Fort Hood yeah. is the first real serious example of this. It's 13 servicemen and an unborn uh, child massacred on the largest U.S. Army base in America, not by somebody who infiltrated the base, but by a fellow major, Nidal Hassan. So, so this, is, this isn't something new. It's something that we need to be prepared with because it is perhaps one of the most insidious forms of jihadism today. One of the conversations I've had with you is to use the really horrible D.C. term, like kind of offline. You know, everybody wants to sound edgy. Let's talk offline. But you've always kind of piqued my interest when you talk about the importance of, you know, the, the language, how we discuss terrorism, that it's not simply a rhetorical matter. You know, if we're going to call Nidal Hassan, you know, you brought it up. If we're going to call it workplace violence. You know, this has a real, you know, tangible material ramification through our counterterror efforts. But... One of the things you've discussed with me that I really was fascinated by is this term, and I'm hoping you can give the audience the importance of, of, of what this term means to some on the left, this countering violent extremism <laughs> narrative and how this is meant to kind of, you lump everybody in, you know, the, the, the returning soldier with 
the radical Islamist and how there, you know, there is a distinction. You're, you're always a better explainer. You do it more elegantly than I do. Yeah, so CVE, the bumper sticker of the Obama administration, countering violent extremism, is their very sneaky way to make you think that it's just extremism in general that's the problem. It's nothing to do with religion. And in fact, some people inside the DOJ, especially the Civil Rights Division and elements of the, the Department of Homeland Security, would have you believe, and I've had this said to my face, that the real threat to America is right-wing extremists and militia members. That's the real threat. Um, you know, 11 law enforcement officers assassinated by people following the Black Lives Matter verbiage, and uh, we have jihadis killing Americans, but it's the conservatives that are the threat. CVE is political correctness run amok, and really, I hope it's uh, a concept or a phrase that's going to be spiked come January the 20th, because it is an effort that really makes you not understand the danger to America. It makes uh, Americans disconnect the dots, and as a result, it makes us all more endangered. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think most of the audience agrees, but I, I've had liberals come back at me and say, oh, why, you know, why are you getting all hung up on the They're just words. They're just words. <laughs> and what they don't understand is they're not just words. Like this is this CVE thing has had real policy ramifications. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Sebastian, but we're talking to Sebastian Gorka, by the way, vice president and professor of strategy and irregular warfare at the Institute of World Politics. Give him a follow on Twitter at Seb Gorka. But Sebastian, they have actually stricken terms from law enforcement and military training manuals. That I mean, that has a. I was an instructor at a law enforcement academy in Maryland when I was a Secret Service agent. If you can't even teach our law enforcement people that radical Islamic terrorism exists, then of course that's going to have a real world ramification on how they investigate the cases. Am I wrong? Absolutely, absolutely. So, so you know, th this is incredibly dangerous. This is one of the reasons why I wrote. Uh, the book Defeating Jihad. Uh, look, here's the simplest analogy, Dan. Imagine uh, you're a very sick patient and you go to the hospital and the hospital administrator has banned use of the word cancer. We don't believe in cancer. Cancer doesn't exist. So you're not allowed to use it. And you roll up and you've got third stage pancreatic cancer. And the doctor, for political reasons, has to say, um, you've got the flu why don't you just go home, hydrate, and take some aspirin? What's going to happen to that patient? They're going to yeah. die. Well, you yeah. cannot solve a problem, let alone, let alone um, cure an ill, if you're not allowed to diagnose it accurately. And when the White House in 2011 sent an unclassified memo to the then Attorney General and the then Chairman of the Joint Chiefs saying all mention of religion specifically Islam, will be banned from law enforcement and military training. And when they said, well, you cannot use the word jihad to describe people who call themselves jihadis, then we just entered the rubber room. It was like a bad SNL skit, and that kind of political correctness costs people their lives. Amen, brother. Hey, Sebastian, thank you so much for joining us. Sebastian, folks, is the author of Defeating Jihad, The Winnable War, a New York Times bestseller, and I can assure you a must-read if you have any interest in terrorism, counterterrorism, understanding the ideology. Again, it's called Defeating Jihad, The Winnable War. I'm looking at it on Amazon right now. 
go and buy it by Sebastian Gorka at Seb Gorka on Twitter. Sebastian, thank you so much. Really appreciate you. God bless. Up. Happy New right, Year, brother. God bless. Happy New Year. All right, folks. Like I said, man, he, he that guy's probably forgotten more stuff about terrorism than most people know. And I, I was a law enforcement guy, and I'm always. Uh, Always taken aback by his depth of knowledge, so I appreciate him coming on. I'm Dan Bongino, at Bongino on Twitter, filling in for Sean Hannity. If you want to give us a call, 800-941-7326. All right, let me get to our guest here. we got a great guest, big fan of this guy. Uh, Mark Meadows, congressman from uh, Republican congressman from North Carolina's 11th District. Uh, congressman Meadows, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate what you're doing down there. And Dan, it's great to be with you, and thanks so much for standing for freedom, as you always do and you always have. Well, you're a good man, and, uh, you know, it's – Lauren and Linda and Jason, they got a great team up there. And when they, they said, hey, you want to fill in on the 27th? They said, you got an idea for guests? And I said, yeah, of course. I said, we got to have Congressman Meadows. He's actually one of the straight shooters up there. And you, those are sadly, you know, few and far between. That's, uh, you know, I'll leave that one for another day. But between you and Mike Lee, there are, I just want the listeners to know that there are some good guys left, that this is a really good man. And I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show. It means a lot to me. So, well, it means a lot to me to be with you again and uh, look forward to discussing the important things that are affecting not only our country, but the, the world in general with this most recent U.N. vote. I can't believe uh, that uh, we abstained and turned our back on Israel, Dan. It's just unbelievable. Well, well, I, I know where you stand on Israel, but I, I'm just kind of curious from just from a personal perspective. When, did you see this coming? I mean, was there kind of some whispers up on the Hill? Because I, I obviously I'm not a uh, you know, I, I lost my race. I'm not a member of Congress. I, you know, I wish I were at times, but I'm not. But I don't have the access you do. Were there whispers on the Hill that he was going to do this and break, you know, decades of standing U.S. policies this is crazy. Well, not not really. I mean, when you really look at this, is when the vote was taken, the fact that it was taken on a Friday before Christmas, uh, there's a whole lot that went into it, uh, Dan, that really was concerning to me. But more importantly than that is is when you see the, the people on the Security Council that actually pushed it forward, New Zealand, Ukraine, you know, some of these people that voted for it, we've we've had their back, and yet it seems like there was a wink and a nod coming from the administration, and it's not. It hadn't just stopped. You know, you you see that Secretary Kerry is going to do a, another big speech, and I think what he's going to try to do is poison the well for the incoming Secretary of State uh, in terms of Palestinian-Israeli relationships. So there wasn't a whole lot of advance warning, but I can tell you, hitting the ground running in January. I've talked to some of the, the senators in the upper chamber. I know in the House we're going to be ready to really apply some real pressure to see if we can get them to reverse course. And, and I think uh, we're talking to Congressman Mark Meadows from North Carolina's 11th District, a real uh, champion for conservative values. Uh, you know, Congressman, the, the cabinet selections by President-elect Trump so far, um, I've been very excited about. I was an early Ted Cruz supporter when uh, President-elect Trump, of course, uh, the GOP nominee at the time, won the nomination. You know, I, I saw him as a far, far better option to Hillary Clinton. And I, I think on the Israel issue, I mean, we could talk about a thousand different issues, but specifically on the Israel issue. Now we are seeing the ramifications of what a Hillary Clinton presidency in, in, in contrast to a Barack, excuse me, a president elect Trump, a soon to be president Trump presidency. These cabinet selections, I, I think, you know, we can start to turn the tide a bit. I mean, what tangibly, though, can we do? I mean, let me just sum it up with this. A caller before it said, can we undo this? And I said, well, 
I'm not sure. I mean, we can stop implementing it, but we can't reverse it because the Russians and the Chinese will probably block it. Am I correct? Well, you're correct. I mean, uh, to reverse course on a resolution would be extremely difficult to do, primarily because of the five permanent members of the Security Council. Any one of those could veto it. And so really the damage from a resolution standpoint is done. Now, there are follow-up things that that have to be done and could be done. And I can tell you that there's going to be real pressure to bear. I I got calls from uh, some of my Senate colleagues uh, right after it happened uh, asking about uh, foreign uh, assistance that we actually send to some of these countries. You know, it's amazing that we have uh, 177 countries that get foreign aid from the United States, and yet they vote against the United States at the U.N. Uh, well over 60 percent of the time. And that's that's on critical issues. And so uh, we have to start making sure that not only our vote matters, but really uh, that that a vote against the United States and our uh, best ally in the Middle East, Israel, has consequences. I believe President-elect Trump is willing to do that. I think he'll be the most pro-Israel uh, president that we've had in decades. And so uh it is encouraging to me to see him take such a strong stand uh, for our friend and ally Israel. You know, Congressman, I'm really glad you brought this idea of funding the U.N. when they're voting against us, not all the time, but a good portion of the time, because this is one of those issues. You and I have both knocked on doors again. You won. You know, I, I lost my race, but we still talk to people. I get this question from people all the time giving speeches, you know, in what the liberals would call flyover country, you know, what you and I call home. Uh, when you talk right. to, you know, working Americans, they just don't get it. They're scratching their heads like, let me get this straight. We've got a U.N. that, again, not all the time, but a good portion of the time votes against American interests. And yet we're funding, what, 20 plus percent of their operational budget. And we give them, uh, you know, bucket loads of money. It just this does not resonate with the average working American. They don't get it. Well, and they shouldn't get it. I mean, because here, here's the interesting thing is when you have that soft diplomacy and, and you're actually giving aid to a particular country, you, you typically expect that at least on those areas that are critically important to a nation, that there would be a hesitation. But there was no hesitation. We saw a 14 uh, to 1 abstention vote on this particular vote as it relates to Israel. That's why you, you have to start to question uh, was there a complicit nature with, with regards to the Obama administration? You know, was there a wink and a nod? Do you see that, uh, they were behind the scenes? Uh, my understanding is, is that there is proof that will, uh, be given to, uh, the incoming administration as it relates to some of the, uh, behind the, the, the scenes negotiations that went on. Yeah. But, but it's important for us to know that it is not our money is not the government's money it's the american taxpayers money and we need to be responsible and when they don't see a direct result with the money that we spend then shame on us we need to be held accountable and so should the un representatives and i have to tell you from a political perspective and we're talking to representative mark meadows uh, congressman from north carolina's 11th district there's no way President Obama leaves without egg on his face on this, Congressman. I mean, you have Debbie Wasserman Schultz, no bastion of hard right values down here in Florida with me, coming out and condemning this thing. I mean, you've even had Chuck Schumer, maybe not as strong a terms, but, you know, it's kind of suggesting like, hey, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. I mean, I don't see how 
he leaves office without this being a stain on his administration, especially in conjunction with what I think we can all recognize now is a disastrous Iran deal paving a path for them to have nuclear weapons. This is crazy. Well, it is a a disastrous Iran deal. And it's interesting you mentioned people like Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Ted Deutsch of Florida. I mean, when you get some of these, it is a bipartisan issue when we start to look at at Israel and standing up for our ally there. It can be bipartisan. So I applaud them for coming out and and denouncing this. But you're right. The the damage is done. It will be a stain on his uh, abysmal foreign policy record already. I mean, when you really look at it, to have Secretary Kerry anticipate and say that he's going to give a major speech on how you can affect uh, Palestinian-Israeli relationships going forward would have to be to ignore the track record of what they've had on foreign policy, which is mean they have been really a foreign policy in abstentia uh, already. They don't lead. They don't see results. And what we have is chaos in the Middle East and around the world. And so it will be something that uh, is part of an Obama legacy that will not be something that most people will applaud. Well, I'm glad you don't pull punches because it really has been. It's been a foreign policy forest fire and it's been terrible. And there's a whole lot of messes around the world to clean up. And really, it's 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 shameful. But in the, in the couple minutes I have left with you, I wanted to hit one final topic. So everybody always focuses on the first hundred days because human beings like to think in round numbers because we have five digits on each hand. I mean, why not 101, right? But what do you see the chances of a big, bold tax reform package? And I'm talking 1986 Ronald Reagan scrapping the brackets, big cuts in the tax rates, which, you know, the liberals will tell you that's a cut in tax revenue. But you and I both know that's not always the case. Reagan actually generated more tax revenue from his tax rate cuts. But what I mean, give us a give us your take from the inside. What what's the the, the murmurs up there on the hill? Is this going to happen or is this another they're dangling a carrot in front of our face to get rid of this horrible tax code and then nothing's going to happen? What's your take on it? Uh, well, Dan, you know, there's two ways things get done in Washington, D.C., and that's slow and never. And uh, <laughs> But I will say that I'm more optimistic about real comprehensive tax reform. I've talked to Chairman Brady on Ways and Means. I've talked to uh, Stephen Moore about their plan. I think that there is a sweet spot for us to really simplify uh, the tax code. Chairman Brady wants to get it down to a postcard. I'm supportive of that. So he has support among moderates and those conservatives in the Freedom Caucus in general terms and uh, for tax reform. So uh, it's going to be going on a parallel track with the repeal of Obamacare. So I think you see both of those things happen uh, very quickly. I'm going to push for the first 100 days, but certainly within the first 200 days, we get that done, and uh, we're, we're able to cr- create a, a lot of job growth that comes out of that, as you sa- stated earlier. Oh, yeah. I mean, we hit, uh, what is it, in 84, we hit 6% GDP growth. I mean, Barack Obama hasn't hit 3% in any year. I mean, it's it's the, the evidence of the success of big, bold tax reform is everywhere, if you're willing to look at it. Hey, one quick thing, and I'll let you run. Um, on the Senate side, we have a number of very, very vulnerable Democratic senators up for re-election in states Trump won. Some he won quite handily. Now, I mean, I'm asking an obvious question, but don't you think we can use this as kind of a political, you know, tactic to get some of these people if we were to campaign in their states? So let's say you get Democratic senator so-and-so and state so-and-so that went for Trump. 
I mean, we should set up rallies there all the time if they go against this tax package and say, hey, here's your senator. He's on the wrong side of this, folks. We're looking to put more money, take-home pay in your wallet. Why is Senator so-and-so not with us? I mean, this could be a real strategic weapon for us. You're right. And if we can't make them see the light, we need to make them feel the heat. And the only thing that a politician understands is getting voted out of office. So I think I'll be all in for that to make sure that that message gets out there. And I know that you will do as well, Dan. Yeah, I, you know, that this is this is all I got, Congressman. This effort means a lot to me. I mean, I'm the first president I remember, you know, was Ronald Reagan. And I just remember everybody feeling great about the country. And it's really sad. I mean, I'm a conservative. It's not a secret, but it's just really sad how divided we've become. I mean, I, I was listening earlier to another guy talking about how we don't even share a common culture anymore. There's like the far left Lena Dunham crowd. And then there's, you know, we listen to like kid rock and country music. It's a shame. There's no unified, you know, John Wayne anymore. And it's really, really sad. It doesn't have to be that way. And I'm really hoping there's a better tomorrow ahead. I'm always optimistic, though, as I know you are. So <laughs> I am. And I believe that there is a better, a better tomorrow ahead. We'll together make uh, sure that America is great again. Congressman, I really, really appreciate it. And I can't say enough and speak about your character enough to the audience here. I, I know what kind of guy you are, and what you're willing to do for people who need help, who aren't, you know, showboats, anything. And you're one of those guys. So thank you again for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Well, it's great to have been with you. Take care and happy new year to you, Dan. Happy New Year, sir. All right, folks, that was Congressman Mark Meadows representing North Carolina's 11th district. I promise you. I can't go into the details, but a really, really good guy who actually gives a damn about the conservative cause. I promise you, I'll put my name behind that. All right, folks, I'm Dan Bongino at D Bongino on Twitter. Make sure you give Sean a follow at Sean Hannity. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Sean Hannity Show. Dan Bongino filling in for Sean at the Bongino on Twitter. If you want to send comments, criticisms, whatever, make sure you give Sean a follow as well at Sean Hannity. All right. I got Noah Paula coming up in a minute here, but uh, just a little quick update on a breaking news story. It's on some of the cable news channels now. Uh, it says Trump Tower, the bottom floor, some video out there. It looks like it was evacuated due to a suspicious package. Um, that's all we have. There's really nothing else. This is sadly a. I wish it weren't so, but a pretty common occurrence in New York City. Having been both a police officer and a federal agent, I know they have, I was with the NYPD for a, for a while. They have a pretty good procedure for rendering these things uh, safe or the scene safe. So hopefully it is safe and hopefully we'll find out um, soon, you know, but there's really nothing else to report. A couple channels have picked it up. A couple haven't uh, yet uh, broken it yet, but there's some video of the ground floor, you know, people, uh, people evacuating the building, let's say, in an expeditious uh, fashion. So, again, we'll keep you updated if we hear anything. All right, let's get to our guest. We've been talking about this disgraceful U.N. vote on Israel, which, frankly, disgusts me. Uh, really, the, the D words, right? Disgraceful. I mean, it, it deliberate, sadly, by the Obama administration. Uh, we have this now. Noah Pollack, director of the Emergency Committee to Israel, and contributor to Free Beacon, and uh, just commentary at the Weekly Standard as well. Noah, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. And listen, it's great to have you on. I really wanted to discuss this today. And, and, and Lauren's a big supporter. You always said, oh, he'd be great to have on about this topic. This is a really hot topic for me personally, the Israel, uh, the, 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 the issue of us supporting Israel. Because as I said in an earlier segment, our enemies make almost no distinction between us and Israel. In other words, I'm sure you've heard this line before that, you know, first we get the Saturday people and then we get the Sunday people. 
Like it's right. not really a foreign policy issue in the eyes of our enemies. And sadly, it's become that. I mean, I get it from a practical perspective. I understand. But you, you get what I'm saying here? Like our enemies don't make the distinction. I wish more people would get that. Right. Does that make sense? Right. I mean, it's the idea is like we can feed Israel to the wolves and, uh, you know, appease <laughs> people who hate us, too. And it's it's a very, I think, delusional type of foreign policy, the idea that you're going to basically uh, throw Israel to the wolves and they'll be they'll be happy with that. And they're not, these are the same people who'd like to come after us. And one of the reasons they go after Israel first is because Israel is smaller and it's in the Middle East and uh, it's more vulnerable. And it's easier to go after and pick on the little guy than it is to pick on the big guy. And so what we do is we become complicit, or I should say not we, but Obama becomes complicit in essentially helping other people bully uh, a smaller and more vulnerable country. Now, what's your take on this kind of uh, this? I've, I've heard this from a couple of people, not just one. And these are more than credible sources. Uh, Ambassador Ron Dermers put it out there. I mean, these are not fringe people. These are mainstream people who have put it out there. That not only did we abstain from voting on this resolution but and de facto letting it pass because we could have vetoed it, this shameful resolution. I mean, I really I can't think of enough adjectives to, to describe this disaster, but that the Obama administration, that the rumor out there now is that they actually pushed this initiative. And if that's the case, Noah, if you agree with that, I'm, I'm not going to answer for you. But isn't that pretty shameful that. Push it behind the scenes. And if, if listen, if you're going to be if you're going to push it, then at least vote for it and have some guts. I mean, it would still be wrong, right. but at least no, you'd have some like guts. The, there's but there's both betrayal and cowardice here. Um, of, of course, the administration promoted this behind the scenes. Um, it, this is this, this, there was nothing too complicated about this. I mean, uh, various diplomats who were involved in this told the Israelis this is what's going on. Uh, the administration is making a, a fairly feeble attempt uh, to deny it. Um, but the idea that, you know, the United States of America, the most powerful country in the world, was like powerless sitting there at the U.N. to do anything to stop this is ludicrous. I mean, this thing was promoted by New Zealand, you know, a tiny country. And we know that, that various uh, Obama administration officials had contact with, the, with officials from these countries and were discussing this. And the idea that, like, somehow the Obama administration was caught off guard by this and didn't know what to say. I mean, it doesn't pass the last test. And then to add kind of insult to injury, they come forward and they, they lie to everyone. I mean, they lie about so many things in the foreign policy, whether it's the Iran deal or any, uh, many other issues. And they, they think we're all so stupid. And they come forward and say, oh, geez, you know, we didn't know this was going on. I mean, how, you know, we didn't have anything to do with this. We just abstained from the vote. I mean, it's preposterous. Well, Noah, it's, it's not just that they lie. It's that they, they don't even lie about lying. Like, in other words, you had Ben Rhodes who's become like the Baghdad Bob of this administration. They trot out Ben Rhodes on Israel Channel Number 2, I think it was. I got to get to that right. clip eventually. They, have, they trot out Ben Rhodes to defend this thing on Israeli TV. Keep in mind, this is the same guy who gave an interview to a magazine where he said in his own words, basically, yeah, we lie to the American people all the time about the Iran deal, and you people in the press are a bunch of idiots. I mean, it's like, it's not just that the Obama administration does the wrong thing, it's that they do it, they're proud of it, and then they, like, they stick a fork in you just to and make sure press, it hurts a little extra. And the press never, the amazing thing is there's never really outrage from the press. Like, I feel like if a Republican president or a conservative president was this bald-faced, 
in lying to the American people, in lying to the media, that there would be all manner of curiosity in the press and there'd be teams of investigative reporters assigned to dig up what really happened. And here you have numerous instances of Biden's people, Kerry's people, Ben Rhodes, all claiming that they had that there was no coordination of this, yet there is so much ample evidence to the contrary. And this gets a big yawn from the press. No one's curious. No one's interested. It's like, oh, okay, whatever, you know, not a story. Well, the one I think big positive, there are many, but I think the one big positive we can take from the election of Trump and his cabinet selections is, you know, well, let's be honest, nobody gives a crap what the press, they just don't. I mean, the, the press right. is influenced from the days of the great gray lady, Walter Cronkite, you know, even into the early days of Tom Brokaw, where if they didn't say it, it didn't happen. It's over. I mean, it's over. You right. have even outlets you write for, Weekly Standard, The and Beacon, so, Breitbart. And so bitter and frustrated about the fact that they spent six months attacking Trump, thinking that they were the arbiters of what was acceptable in America, um, and that, that by, by coming out against him once he became the Republican nominee, they would deny him the presidency. And then they didn't. And now you get just the endless, uh, you know, their tears have tears, and you get this passive-aggressive attitude on the part of the media um, and it's I mean, in some ways, it's like a wonderful spectacle to watch, because I think these guys all all realize now that they're not nearly as powerful as they thought they were. Um, and instead of looking inward, you know, they're always telling everyone else to be accountable and to be introspective right. and everything. And they refuse to do that for themselves. And so instead, they just have these temper tantrums or they just continue ignoring stories like this one um, where, you know, the average person who's following this is thinking to himself, you know, why, you know, the, the New York Times had like a week straight of wall to wall coverage condemning uh, uh, Trump's pick to be ambassador to Israel, David Friedman. And yet on something like this, on a very important story that's actually substantively important, the administration is lying and nobody cares in the press. It's just like and, an and they and Noah, they have zero the, the media, the, the today's media has zero sense of context or history whatsoever. I mean, they have a sense of it. They just ignore it. I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. I mean, you, we think about things like, the, you know, the, the so-called mythical right of return. It's like Israel is always held to a standard that no other country in the history of humankind has ever been held to. I mean, just common sense questions like, oh, there's a right of return? Really? Like, do the, do the British get to come back here? Or what about the right. French in Indochina? I mean, it's like... Israel is held to a standard. They've had a historical attachment to this land, literally thousands of years old. And all of a sudden, yes, no, people get to go back and lay claim to Israeli land because allegedly at some point someone may have lived there. This is insanity. Right. They're making well, this also, up. There's the, there's the, the media, they, they have amnesia about things that happened just, just very recently. I mean, on this particular instance, the Obama administration for seven years said over and over again that it would never support this type of U.N. anti-Israel resolution. They always said, and you can go and look at speeches from Obama, from Susan Rice, from John Kerry, saying that, that, the, the, that any uh, negotiate, that, 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 that the peace process has to be negotiated directly by the parties, that the, the U.N. is the wrong forum for this, the U.N. is hostile to Israel. You know, when, they, when, he, when Obama was running for re-election uh, and wanted support of mainstream people and wanted, you know, Jewish donors... Um, they were very happy to say all these nice things about how, how bad the U.N. was and how they would never support um, a U.N. attempt to impose terms on Israel. And then, you know, speaking of cowardice, now that now that the election's over uh, in the 11th hour, Obama is going to leave office and, you know, stick a knife in Israel's chest. 
Well, no, well, let me wrap you with this kind question. Of, uh, you know, they're like, no problem. They, I, I haven't seen many New York Times stories, you know, uh, digging up all those quotes of the administration saying they'd never do something like this. No, and you won't. So don't, don't hold your breath. You'll, we'll be resuscitating you. But this, let me ask, let wrap you with this question. This is an important one. I think a lot of people out there, they, they're just puzzled by this. And I mean, I, I don't want to talk about Jewish voters like liberals talk about, you know, a, the black right. voter. This, my wife's Hispanic. She's not a Hispanic voter. She's an American. She doesn't really right. care about anything other than being a mom. And, you know, she doesn't really. But for, play the liberal game for a moment. Jewish voters, based on exit polling, tend to vote largely Democratic. Yeah. It's not a you know, it's not a mystery to anybody. I I don't get it. I mean, you have a, an unbelievably again. I hate to do this a block a group of people. You have lazy people right. and hard workers who are Hispanic, black, or whatever. But you have a, a largely industrious group of people who work super hard, have largely conservative values, and whose country, home country, some, not all, I mean, they're, you know, Israeli uh, Jewish voters have no attachment to Israel at all in the United States, but their home country is under full-fledged assault by international institutions being led by a president, and they, they still vote Democrat. They support him. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, I'll, I'll tell you what I think the, the, the answer is, and this is, this is a very common question, and it is very maddening, especially if you're a conservative Jew like me and you can't believe that your co-religionists would do this. Um, American Jews came to the United States. Most of them are descendants from immigrants who came over 100 years ago to the United States. They're highly assimilated. Um, they tend to be very liberal. They're successful, um, but they're, they're a very liberal, and they tend to be quite secular. And we know that Typically, across all religions, the more secular you are, typically the more liberal you are. And this is very true of the Jewish vote. Um, the reality is, is that, you know, the overwhelming majority of American Jews um, are, are very secular now, and secular people tend to be liberal. Um, and it's changing, though, because there's such a high rate of intermarriage and of kind of people just sort of dropping the faith among Jews that um, the, the, the share of the Orthodox section of the Jewish community is growing because the Orthodox don't assimilate and they have more children. Um, secular Jews tend to also, like other secular people, have very, very few children. Um, and I think actually you will see the Jewish vote start trending more toward the Republicans in the coming decades as the demographics shift. Oh, from your mouth to, to God's ears, I mean, literally. Hey, Noah, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks that. for having me on. Yeah, you were great. That was Noah Pollock, folks. I really uh, appreciate him coming on. This Israeli issue, as you can tell, for me covering it for the last two plus hours is really hot on my mind. I mean, it's just an absolute abomination what's going on with this administration and the throwing under the bus of literally our only Democratic ally, strong ally in the region. It's an absolute disgrace, should be condemned by every American, regardless of your political stress. I want to just quickly discuss another topic because this is another thing that's really like kind of getting under my skin and baking my bagels, man, big time, right? The rewriting of the Obama administration legacy is already happening, folks, and I want you to be really, really careful about what's going on. They're already pulling this dipsy-doo flipperoo right in front of your eyes, and they're expecting to make idiots out of all of you. Now... I saw it. I was looking at a piece in The Guardian the other day. Now, in fairness, the, the, the article was from April, but all of these you know, papers right now, liberal and conservative, The Guardian's like left wing, pretty far left. They're all doing their, hey, here's our most read piece of you know, 2016. You know, it's the end of the year. Everybody does that. But the piece I was reading, I had read before at The Guardian, is a clear rewriting. And it's about neoliberalism or the, the idea of you know, supporting these crazy things like liberty and freedom. I say that sarcastically. 
And the author is tries to debunk this whole conservative agenda, and it's just a nonsensical piece. But in the piece is some very clear signs of what's going to happen going forward when the media tries to rewrite the Obama years for people. They're, and it's clear as day on the economic front what they're going to do when Trump pushes for tax cuts is, number one, they're going to lie about what happened in the Reagan years. And number two, they're going to lie about what got us into the recession. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you with 100 percent absolute certainty, I will risk my reputation on this. This is not a small show. You don't say this to people if you can't back it up. If you go and do your homework about what got us into the housing recession, the financial recession, whatever the heck you want to call it. If you go and actually do your homework, and I know the liberals won't do this, but if you really want to educate yourself, go look back on YouTube or any other video format for all of the quotes of Treasury Secretary Jon Snow, the Bush administration officials, Republicans up on the Hill, warning repeatedly in 2003, 2004, 2005, warning repeatedly about the devastating accumulation of assets in the housing sector that was about to bust. Now, liberals, I know that's hard for you to digest because your your narrative and what I'm seeing now, this rewriting of the Obama agenda is going to be this. Obama saved us from a devastating recession brought on by the Republicans. Uh, number one, no, Obama didn't save us. This is the worst recovery from a recession based on GDP growth in American history, in modern America, at least post-World War II. That's a fact. And secondly, the Republicans did not do this. Now, granted, were there some bad Republicans who, who had strayed from conservative and liberty-based values? Absolutely. But the Republican Party was repeatedly, over and over and over again, warning people in the media, warning people up on the Hill that there was an accumulation of assets in the housing sector that were not value, that didn't have the value they said they had. This is, any, anyone can go and watch this stuff. Again, now, to be fair, some of their prescriptions I don't think were good ones. I mean, Snow was up on the Hill and saying we need another regulatory agency to watch the, quote, prudential activities of Fannie and Freddie, basically warning Fannie and Freddie was in trouble. But they were proposing another regulator, which in my mind was crazy. But the point I'm trying to make, folks, is claiming that the Republicans somehow caused this recession and the almighty to be sainted Barack Obama who should be be beatified because he saved us from the devastating Republican-caused recession is complete garbage. It's completely fabricated. It's 100% made up. I'm not a Bush acolyte. I'm not a George W. Bush defender. I think a lot of the policies in his administration were terrible. I think some were very good, the income tax uh, cuts. I think TARP was a terrible idea. I think the expansion of Medicaid was an even worse idea. We had no funding mechanism to pay for this kind of stuff. I think the debt accumulated was a bad idea as well. But pretending that it was George W. Bush that caused this recession when his administration warned repeatedly about what was going to happen is just that's just straight up junk. That's crap. That's garbage. That's 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 bunk. That's made up. You're just living in a fantasy land. I mean, this is not cryptic, top secret, skiff level material where if you go to YouTube, it says, Please imprint your fingerprint. You must have a GS67.2 clearance. This is a DEFCON 3.62 material. This is like available for any knucklehead to go to the interweb and put in YouTube, Jon Snow, housing crisis. I mean, the stuff comes up like that. It's not even hard to find. Folks, they are going to rewrite this now. And the problem is 
you know, we had we were talking with Noah Pollock before about the media and how the media. I, I've told this story probably a thousand times, but it just bears repeating how how bought and sold the media is into ideology. That simple facts like reporting that yes, you know, uh, Bongino is right. Matter of fact, the Republicans did repeatedly warn about the oncoming housing crisis, and it was Barney Frank on tape, by the way, folks, who repeatedly defended Fannie and Freddie. Matter of fact. Not only did he defend Fannie and, uh, Fannie and Freddie, Barney Frank, liberal congressman from Massachusetts, he was warning Republicans not to say anything about it. He was like, no, you guys are exaggerating and you're causing a problem. You know, they're fine. They're fine. Oh, yeah, they were fine. All right. Nearly took down the entire global economy. But you understand, like, if the media doesn't do this, they will if they don't, they have to find a way to apologize for the god awful Barack Obama economy, which has averaged two percent growth, which is pathetic compared to just about every modern president, even including Jimmy Carter. It's been awful. So what do they say? Oh, the Republicans did it. Now, again, just to show you how, how bought and sold these people are in the media, how facts mean nothing to them. Again, that's a fact. They can look it up. I gave this interview once when I was running for office to this Washington Post editorial board member. I'm not even going to give his name because he, I don't want to embarrass the guy because he really was so, he was so dumb. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't feel the need to cause a bad situation for him psychologically. He, he has to live with himself and his ignorance. But he calls me on the phone. He's arguing about the George W. Bush tax cuts. I was running for office. They were debating uh, who to endorse, which really wasn't a debate. Of course, they were going to endorse the Democrat. But he says to me, oh, you know, Mr. Barnes, you know, you talk about tax cuts and, you know, we all know tax cuts cost us money. And I was like, which ones? And he says, well, you know, the George W. Bush tax cuts, of course, cost the government a lot of money. I said, uh, they did? I said, that's actually factually incorrect. And not only is it incorrect, after George W. Bush cut the tax rates in 2003, tax revenue went up for the following four years, went up dramatically. Like, you're just making that up. Like, any any idiot can go online and figure that out. Like, you, you, you understand, all right? This folks, this guy insisted to me, insisted to me repeatedly that I was making this up. It's not only was he not lying, that I was lying when again, anyone can go look this up. Just go to the Treasury's website, go to what is the tax foundation, any of these places that have tables, very easy to read. It's not complicated. And look at the tax revenue after the Bush tax cuts. Look at the tax revenue after the, after the Reagan tax cuts. And you're going to find out shockingly to some liberals that tax revenue went up not down again you're just making it up you're lying to yourself inflation adjusted tax revenue still went up there's no argument you have to make you seem rational you're just a liar and the media is doing this now and that guardian article reminded me of this of this narrative because the author of the guardian article this guy david i think it's monbiot i may be saying it wrong but i don't i'm not good at the french accent right he starts off his whole piece by blaming everything on basically conservative values like, oh, the housing crisis, the economic disaster, the financial crisis, the rise of Donald Trump. It's all conservatism. Neoliberalism did this, except for one thing. The story's not true. The story's completely made up. And you wonder again how someone at The Guardian, I mean, I guess a semi-reputable paper, how someone didn't confront this guy and say, hey, listen, um, that's not exactly true. This story about Republicans causing the housing crisis is totally made up. Like there's videos out there of Republicans warning repeatedly the Bush administration trying to stop it. You're just making this up. But not only do they not do that, they print it and they celebrate it because liberalism is a lie, folks. It's a lie. It's a crap sandwich being fed to you. It is all a myth. 
It is the relentless pursuit of power by hook or by crook, by lie, by by creating mythical fairy tales. The Republicans caused the housing disaster. Reagan, the tax cuts caused massive deficits. Wow, that's shocking. They did because tax revenue went up. Oh, yeah, but don't mention the government spending did it. That makes Democrats look bad. Let's blame it on the tax cuts. They're doing the same thing now. This is why I cannot encourage you in strong enough terms to ignore what these people say. Mainstream media folks have completely sold out. They are just making it up. It is one big, like, Teddy Ruxpin story. Remember Teddy? He put a little, like, coin in the back, and he was like, hello, I'm here to tell you a fairy tale. Like, that's the New York Times and the Washington Post. You drop a quarter in the newspaper box, and you're just reading a myth, a fairy tale. They make this stuff up. And it's all made up for one big fat reason. To make conservatives look bad. To advance the liberal agenda, which is agendaless. It is just the acquisition of power. Whether, again, it's Obamacare or taking your money, taking your freedoms away. I saw this story the other day at the Breitbart. I think it was AWR Hawkins put up a story about how the Social Security Administration now, if you have someone handling your financial uh, your financial situation with Social Security, they're going to take away your gun rights. Oh, yeah, that's reasonable. So, you know, got a gentleman who's a little older, maybe have a little bit of trouble with his eyesight, doesn't like balancing his checkbook, has his daughter taking care of his finances. Yeah, of course he shouldn't have a gun if you're a liberal. I mean, this is insane. This is insane. Liberalism is a myth. It's a, it's a stinking fairy tale that you wouldn't read to your dog if you had nothing to do. It's a myth, and the media keeps it alive. I'm telling you, watch for it. You will see the rewriting of the Obama agenda now. Blame it on the Republicans. And if any tax cuts happen, that's going to be an epic disaster. Watch. I'm telling you. Mark my words. All right, folks. I'm Dan Bongino at D Bongino on Twitter. Make sure you give Sean a follow at Sean Hannity. We'll be right back. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.